And we'll get into Titus chapter 2 today. And what's striking, when you read through Titus and look at it in terms of summary, what strikes me is the constant appeal to conduct. There's not much to the letter to, to Titus. I mean, there's not, I don't demean it, I'm just saying it's not very doctrinally dense. There are some, don't get me wrong, there are some really important zingers in Titus about your salvation and not by our works of righteousness, which we've done. But, but Titus is mainly a basic letter about how to live and how the church should live. And, um, and it's an encouragement to a man that's headed to a very difficult ministry. The problem with Crete, where Titus is going, is the Cretans, the people that live there. And that's what's wrong with Preston, Connecticut, and everywhere else in the world. The problem is the people. That's a very important hallmark of a biblical worldview. The problem is us. And I don't mean the way the environmentalists say it. They, they barely scratch the surface of really the problem of the environment we live in. The problem is that we are sinners. We are the pinnacle of God's earthly creation. And we are broken and desperately wicked and selfish. And this is true culturally. And you have cultures that develop around desperate wickedness and selfishness. And, uh, you know, we're hearing a lot about the cultural decay in, in our country. From its very roots, it was culturally rotten. Well, the farther back we look and the pioneers that came here and set things up, the more we see a, a, an attention to the word of God, with some ups and downs through history. The, the colonial period right before uh, the, the decades before, leading up to the, to the independence, there was some real spiritual rot then too. But what I'm saying is um, we really shouldn't be chauvinistic people in any way. We should never think that we're the good people. The principles that they seized upon by God's grace to say inalienable rights from our creator. That's the stuff. That's, that's great value. But the selfish wickedness of the humans that would administer the system they created, that's broken. And so all the halls of power and all the world are the places of the greatest corruption. What I'm saying is that if you compare um, the culture, the secularist, increasingly godless, libertine, self-destructive, anti-Christian culture of the United States where I live today or anywhere in the United States you might go. If you compare the culture, the popular culture to the Cretan culture, you would say there's a lot of similarities. And the reason is not because we're genetically connected in a way different from other cultures. It's that we're genetically connected to Adam and we're sinful and broken. And so we look down upon the Cretans, because Paul says all Cretans are liars, but God isn't. And so we're studying how Titus will go into work among these wicked people of a broken culture, much like the Corinthians, much like the Prestonians. We will go into this culture. We will not become a product of a Satan-deceived, world-influenced culture, but we will be citizens of heaven representing Jesus Christ in that culture. We won't be a product of it, but we will be a representative of Christ to it. And that means speaking the language, understanding the people. And so Titus has a difficult, challenging mission in a beautiful part of the world on the Isle of Crete. So let's take it up at, we had in Titus 1, we had the great instruction of what the elder that Titus is going to designate elders should be like. The overseer, the episcopos, the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. And this is the way he needs to think about himself. He's not self-willed. This is how he needs to be uh, regarding his character. He needs to be not, self, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not a brawler or pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain not fond of sordid gain. This is what the overseer has to be like. Well, so when you see these characteristics, you say, okay, this, these are disqualifiers. These are problems in character that have to be addressed or this person isn't, 
qualified and you say that's really the, 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 there's a high expectation of performance well don't worry because in chapter two when we finish talking about the overseer we're going to talk about the conduct of everyone and chapter three you know what the con the topic is proper christian conduct the leaders have to be of a certain cast of character because the whole group is supposed to be following that cast of character that 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 way of being look up here please Sit back and look up. Right. <laughs> so in verse eight, but he has to be hospitable. He has to be loving the good. He has to be sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. And then after talking about the way he is supposed to be in his development, his character, now what does he do? And this is the and I, I'm hitting this again because we didn't get to spend much time on it last week. This next thing in verse nine is the big thing. It's the, it's the punch. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. So, okay, so this is the second time. I'm sorry, I can't have you doing that. No one else does that. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, is the summary of his behavior as an elder. The summary of his behavior as an elder is that he is, that he is holding to it. And, and I want to pick apart what that means. But so that, and here's why. He'll be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So you have two ways that the sound teaching that is the basis for his message, two ways this works. Those that are positive in their desire to know God's word can be encouraged, parakaleo, to, to be exhorted, encouraged, uh, developed in the word. And then those who are opposed to the word, he will be equipped by the teaching of the apostles of the Lord Jesus. He'll be equipped to refute, to correct those who contradict him. And so there's, there's a positive and a negative side to this. The word, the faith word ends up being the grass for the sheep and the sling for the shepherd to use in the case of a wolf. And that's, and I'm not saying a contradictor is necessarily a wolf, but every wolf is a contradictor. So let's look at verse nine in some detail. Holding fast to the faithful word. First of all, you have this word anteco, A-N-T-E-C-H-O, anteco. And it is related, it's a, it's a compound word that's related to a very stock Greek word, echo, to have, to hold, echo, E-C-H-O. And so, onteko is to hold against. So the idea is, and you don't just use etymology, but the idea is that you're holding tight to something, not necessarily holding it forth. There's another way to talk about this, although he, in context he will, but this is holding fast to himself that he is in the word committed to the word and clinging to it and then you have difficult construction look up here you have let me show you my laser beam you have the faithful word to peace to lagu but breaking up that construction of the faithful word is kata tain didakain didakain sorry Kata, according to the, the, the didache. What is the didache? What is the teaching? What does that refer to? Now listen to the phrase, holding fast the faithful word according to the teaching. Well, when I, in my 21st century sensibility about the word and Amer American Christendom, think about the word, I think we're talking about the Bible. And so what's the teaching? And so it could be that, uh, and I think I've seen this done. Some would say, well, the teaching is the thing and the bible is only right as much as it's in accordance with the original teaching which puts the bible under the teaching of the apostles and that's insane that's not what's happening the bible is the only repository we have that we know for sure is the teaching of the apostles not the creeds not the so-called apostles creed not the nicene creed find documents in as much as they summarize what the scriptures say. But this is not saying that the teaching, that the word is in accordance with the teaching. This is the message. Logos here is used as the message that he has to present. And it needs to be in accordance with the didache, with the teaching 
that the apostles have delivered, which today we have as the New Testament. So the teaching is the body of truth we've been given, which is 13 letters from Paul, the letter to the, the Hebrews, James, three letters from John, book of Revelation, the four Gospels, Acts. Did I leave anything out? See, the 27 books of the New Testament that are the message of Christ through the apostles and the power of God, the Holy Spirit. That's the Didache. And before that was restricted to writing, there was the Didache. There was the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was his instruction. And that is the Christian life of Paul. We are here to learn of God's apostles what God wants us to know of himself. And if you hold the place, I'll show you what I mean by the Didache in John chapter 7. John 7 is the fantastic place where Jesus, one of many places where Jesus says where he got his stuff. And John 7, 14, but when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? How do they know he's not been educated? Because they have the patent on education. If you've been educated, you've been through our stuff. You've been trained by us. And they never saw him in class. How can you? He hasn't been educated which is a very interesting thought. We have a thought that way today about education. If it's not done a certain way by a certain certification, then it's not educated. And uh, so there's a whole, whole philosophy of education in this statement, but listen to it. So Jesus answered them and said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Guess what the word teaching is there? Did okay. There's another word for teaching that's synonymous, didaskalia. And, um, and I think we would tend to translate the didache teaching and didascalia doctrine, but they're, they're synonyms. And it means somebody who knows is telling people that don't how it is. Now, you know, cause I told you not, not me, but, but the, the person with the authority in this case, Jesus says the teaching that he is offering to Israel is of infinite value, not because he has a neat idea, not because he's a special innovator or a maverick or all the things people say uh, trying to bring Jesus into a secular frame, but because he has something from God, his father, just like the prophets of the Old Testament. My teaching is not mine, but he is who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or of whether I speak of myself. He who speaks from himself seeks only his own glory but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. And so the Lord Jesus identifies the source of the Didache. It's God, the father. The message he has to carry forth is from the father. And I think in every case, because he's on mission for his father. This is why in Matthew chapter six, he says, he says, uh, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you when he's talking about rewards and success. We are on a mission from God. This is why in Luke chapter one, he says, did you not know, mom, I had to be about my father's business or in my father's space, doing my father's work. This is something the father has orchestrated through the son and it continued by a delegation to the apostles and the one who taught the most for the Gentile world is the apostle Paul. And so this didache has been carried forth from the Lord Jesus and the inspiration of the spirit to the apostle Paul. And that's what he's saying. And this is understand, this is why we say the Bible, not the pastor. This is why we say the Bible, not the priest, the Bible, not the Pope, the Bible, not the catechism, the Bible, not the systematic theology book, the Bible, not be, not so well, somebody where they've read a lot and they've read a lot of stuff and they, and they, and they know a bunch of stuff and they've got thousands of footnotes in their document. The Bible, not the research guy. The Bible, not the, not the, the distillation over generations of, of creeds, which are helpful, generally helpful systematic theology statements. The Bible. The way you end up not getting back to the Bible in 1526 or so 
is that you put Thomas Aquinas equal to the Bible. And you say, only Dr. Thomas can teach us how to read the Bible. And that's why there was no completion of the Reformation. Well, that's one step in the fact that there was no completion of the Reformation. Martin Luther did not seek to break with the Roman Catholic Church. He sought to teach the Roman Catholic Church the Bible. But see, the encrusted selfishness and self-righteousness and arrogance of man is very powerful. And apparently God's project is not an organizational structure on earth. Now, it's a recruiting thing that as you grow in the word, you become equipped to do so that when Jesus does set up his administration, he's got plenty of people working for him in that administration. That's, that's the project. All right. So the did, okay, what is that? The faithful word is what you're going to say, Pastor Titus, you're going to say the faithful word. This message you're going to have is faithful because it is in accordance with the didache, with what the Lord Jesus Christ said. You, Titus, are not the innovator. You're not here to push the theology to its next step. That's the, that's the hobgoblin of theological minds. Theologians always want to come up with something that nobody said before. Now, Titus, you're going to go back to the source material and you're going to bring it forth for the people. You're going to keep going back to the source and keep bringing, bringing it to the people. And so you're going to hold fast a faithful word, the faithful teaching of God's word, because it's in accordance with that teaching that you received, the didache. That's what that means. And I think that's maybe the most important line in Titus. One of the top three anyway. Statements about what the elders or the overseers are supposed to be doing, what Titus as a pastor modeling for those overseers, what he's supposed to be doing. Which means what? That means that the pastor's finger has to be in the Bible. It means that the word is the source material and whatever he says needs to be coming out of it. And so I think Titus 1.9 ends up being really central to our philosophy of ministry. Once you understand what's being said, that there is a body of truth that's been deposited by inspiration of the spirit of God through the apostles and prophets. And we are to, to communicate in accordance with that. Now, some will say so-and-so is not teaching the Bible. And what they mean is that so-and-so is taking a biblical principle and then showing how that biblical principle applies in the circumstance that we're in. Whenever a pastor starts talking about the current political situation, <gasps> here we go, pastor. Someone will immediately say, oh, that's not the Bible. Okay. But how the Bible applies to the current political situation is something that is a faithful word in keeping with the didache. Now, it isn't the didache. It's a faithful word in keeping with it. And this is my view of all systematic theology. Listen closely. Mark Twain, Mark Twain's writings are part of my perspective on systematic theology. What? The gospel according to Judas is an input that my theology will address and, and assess. Because the, the body of truth isn't the creed or somebody's doctrines that they wrote. The body of truth is the Bible. And it becomes the filter that judges every input. So the way we integrate with all external inputs to the Bible is we let them speak. And we let the Bible speak and it passes its verdict. Pass or fail. And so I can say the things about Mark Twain that are humanistic fall short. The things that accord with wisdom, hey, he sounds like he might have come from a culture that had a, a thought or two. A Connecticut Yankee uh, in, in the early days of our country. Holding fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. Now, I will always err on the side of just giving you the didache, just give you the Bible, and I will do my best to apply it. But here's the thing about application. Application is a subjective thing that happens in your life with what the objective word says. And I couldn't possibly guess. I, nobody could. No one's creative enough to think about how the word is going to apply in your life. What's much more important is that you understand what the word is saying. And then you know that, okay, now I'm responsible. Now I know what the word requires of me. And in this situation, which by the way, a lot of people may see you dealing with, and now you're witnessing for Christ. In this situation, this is how I live out the word. We'll give you examples. The Bible's full of them. I have examples in my life. But this faithful word needs to be in accordance with that body of truth. And that's why I've learned Greek and Hebrew. 
because the body of truth has to be understood. And if I don't understand it, then how am I going to give you a faithful word from it? So I think this is really helpful. One last word on research, creeds, and systematic theologies. I love these things. What about the people that say, amen, it's not about the research. Amen. It isn't about the library. You know where I'm going, don't you? Hear my, my southern. Amen. It's not about your systematic theology book or so-and-so had a good idea. That's right. That's right. It's just the Holy Spirit tells you how to think. And then we go from objective to seeking objective knowledge, which we often get right, right, and sometimes get wrong, to mystical intuition. And that's not where the Didache is either. And the faithful word won't be in keeping with the teaching if all you have is, uh, well, I don't really want to spend time studying today. I think I'll just meditate. I think I'll just pray. Or I think I'll just, you know, just, just try, to, try to let the Lord just put something on my heart. Well, he'll put a lot on your heart if you pay attention to what he said in the word. In fact, that's how he does it. It's not hard to see that if you read the text in the power of the spirit and he mediates that word to you as you are working and submitting to it, all kinds of things will occur to you. That's how your life is. But it's the word. It's the word. It's the word. It's the Holy Spirit using the word. It's the Holy Spirit inspired the word and then he's in you and he uses it in you. And so, so Titus you're going to be successful if you will keep that word close, the Bible, the teaching, and then build what you have to say off of that teaching. Boy, wouldn't it be nice to compare notes with Titus? He didn't have the Bible. He had the Old Testament and he had what Paul taught him. I mean, think about the masterclass that is Paul teaching you the doctrine of salvation, not writing Romans, but Paul teaches it to you. Now, God's way was not for us to have that. Our, his way was for us to have the, the, the text that he inspired word by word. But wouldn't it be interesting if we had Paul to teach us personally? That's what I'm just saying. That's Titus's experience. And he wasn't lacking in doctrine because Paul wouldn't put him in this condition, in this situation. You know the deal, right? And, and Paul probably had a way he could walk through it pretty quickly with him and summarize it and review it. And... It's an interesting thing I want to find out about more when I get to heaven. Now, this is why you have to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that you'll be able both to, the, I'm sorry, the elder has to do the, the overseer, so that he'll be able both to encourage in the sound instruction and to correct those who contradict. So look at the contrast. Sound instruction, didascalia, doctrine, you'll be able to instruct uh, encourage them, uh, exhort them, come alongside them with sound instruction, but then also those who contradict. So think about the, the worst thing you can do. The worst, the, wor <laughs> the worst thing you can do about the gospel ministry. The whole thing we do is speech. It's preaching Christ. Somebody has ears and they hear, uh, the, they hear the words and then they, that miraculously, they can understand those words because of the miracle of language and then they can have a thought that responds to that just imagine what's going on that's how we that's how we advance we tell people we tell people if evangelicalism wasn't so corrupted by post-conservative evangelicalism i think it was a really good word but like all good theological words there's some garbage there now but the whole thing is communication so what about those that speak against? They are the, they are, they're the ones that Paul is most concerned about, those who contradict. There are awful things you can do. I don't misunderstand hurting people, you know, the, the damage to people in the churches. You've heard of horrible things that happen to people, molestations and things because sinful people show up at church. Uh, there was a serial killer that was a deacon 10 years ago. He wasn't killing people in church, but... He, he was a deacon. I, he was probably teaching Sunday school. And uh, he was called the BTK killer. Do you remember that guy? You're like, what? You're scaring us now about church. Well, he wasn't in this church. But there, there, there are all kinds of things that happen to people in the churches, and it's awful. But look what Paul focuses on, is the killing of people's souls. 
those that speak against the word of God. It's just like in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Why would someone not agree with the sound teaching of God's word and the words of the Lord Jesus? Why would someone not? Because they're arrogant. The prior condition is there's an arrogance that is a self-importance rejecting what God has said, but I thought. And that makes a perverse mind. And, uh, and, and the more you reject God's word, the more you close yourself off to thinking God's thoughts after him. And so you have to be able as an overseer to have a good solid grounding in the faithful word according to the teaching so that you'll be able to encourage and to, to correct. Encourage and correct. In first, uh, Titus 1, 10 through 16, we move into the problem in Crete, the problem. We have the solution already. God said, you need to set up some elders in Crete who will be able to teach from the word. Now, by the way, every person is a nail and the Bible is the hammer all the time. The answer to our need is always the word of God. Remember that. Whatever the problem was, Titus is, what Paul says, go preach the word. Now, here's the problem, the explanation, the, the, the post-positive conjunction gar tells you that there's an explanation. This paragraph is building off of the prior statement. You need to go and set these guys up of excellent character and the right philosophy of ministry to teach the word for those that are positive and those that are negative. You need to be able to do this because there are many that you're going to be dealing with who are rebellious. For many, there are who are rebellious, empty talkers and deceivers. The list of these people, rebellious is the character quality of rejection of God. I don't have to submit to him. Empty talkers is the content that they have to supply of uh, their value is, is, is lost. Um, Matayo Logoi, Matayo Logoi, Matayo taste is the vacuum in Ephesians um, it, it, of, of worthlessness. And so worthless words or empty words, empty talkers and deceivers. So toward God, rebellion, toward man, worthless communication, which ends up being deception. So worth, worse than worthless. So what's wrong with these people? They started with a problem with God. And now they've got, because of that problem, they are poisoned to, to man and their deception. These are minions. These are workers against the objectives of God. If you're not working within God's objectives, then what are you working in? Counter to his objectives. There is no middle ground. So there are many who are this way. And then he says, especially those of the circumcision. Here toward the end of Paul's ministry, he has received such torment. He has been so opposed by the Judaizers, those that preach a false gospel. His first letter, Paul's first letter that we have in the Bible is Galatians about these people that have come behind him and said, Jesus is fine. Yeah, sure. But also the law, also circumcision will get you a card to a good moil. He'll set you guys up with your surgery so that you can, you can indeed be saved and be part of the covenant. No, nowhere in the text of scripture is that a requirement for regeneration to be part of the body of Christ. And so the circumcision has been a reference. It's a reference to the Jews. And this is not anti-Semitic in any way. It's saying there are rebellious, empty talkers and deceivers, a lot of them of the circumcision that are going to oppose you. And so if you're in the work that God sent me to do, and, the, and Titus is, then you're going to be attacked by the villains that attacked me. That's the deal. So he's strengthening him for this work. Whom it is necessary to silence. See, you, in verse 9, you need the sound word because you're going to correct those who contradict. And the way you're going to silence them is with the word, with sound words in accordance with the didache, in accordance with the teaching. It is necessary to silence these people. Such ones, whole households are devastating or overturning. The picture is like a giant who picks up a house. Remember Mickey and the giant, the Mickey cartoon? Hey, what's this? That's the idea is, is the word means to overturn. But when your house is topsy turvy, okay, the, it's, it's, it's a nightmare. And that's, that's what he says. Households are being overturned. That word household means the people that live under the same roof, the same householder, 
whole house, houses or households are being overturned. And here's why, because they're teaching things that should not be taught. The why is the participle. I know that because I looked at it in the Greek and it means teaching here, the dosko, to teach. This is the participle that follows from they're overturning households, the main verb. They're overturning households by teaching those things that should not be taught. They overturn households by teaching that should not be taught. Have you seen it? Beloved, I've seen it. The cult missionaries came by, had a long talk with us recently. I say cult because they deny the deity of Christ, the sufficiency of scripture, and the, the Trinity. So saying you're from Christ, I'm sorry, no, not my Christ, not the Christ of creation, the Christ who saved you, the Christ who died for you. Come by and they want to talk and visit and it's great. And if you have a pl pleasant conversation with these folks and you should watch out for the conversation to go to how you know what you know. I know they won't say now, friend, let's talk about epistemology, but that's where the conversation goes because that's how people are brought into this thing by epistemology. I believe it was Obi-Wan Kenobi who said, search your feelings. And that's what we're told. That's what the cult will say is you just, you just need to feel the spirit telling you that these things are true. You just feel that these things are so what things, things that cannot be corroborated by any archeology, span things that have no connection to the actual scriptures of God, things that are, are clearly a lie. No, no, search your feelings to see if these things are true. Well, what about my reason? No, 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 no. Don't go to reason. Don't go to the text. Don't go to the sound teaching and, and uh, the, the faithful word in accordance with sound teaching. Go with how you feel about this false teaching that I'm saying to you. I just, you know, something really resonated with me. And it's a common thing you'll hear from people that convert to these cults. They'll say, I just felt you know, that these things must be so. That's the method. That's the epistemological method. Christians traffic in this too. Christians will try to do this too. They'll say, you just feel it. But Paul tells Titus, the solution to the false teaching that overturns households is the word of God taught to God's people. And it silences these people with their mystical epistemology. They overturn households by teaching things that should not be taught for the sake of sordid gain. And that's the other thing. I didn't learn this in church, but it's a good one. Follow the money, follow the money. Where is, where is this going? What's the, what's the gain that's being gotten by the innovator, by the, the guy with a new word from God for the sake of sordid gain. Someone said from them, one of their own prophets, this is one of my favorite statements forever in the Bible, where Paul is going to quote, we think Epimenides, the 6th century BC Greek philosopher. Some one of them, one of their own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, literally lazy bellies. Now this is my new favorite phrase for a sluggard, lazy belly. My Bible in New American Standard says lazy gluttons, but that's, a, that's a, a paraphrase because the word is lazy belly. Get up, lazy belly. I love it. I love it. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy bellies. Now, Paul included the great joke, the great Cretan paradox in his letter to Titus. It is inspired by God that Paul wrote this and quoted Epimenides. Now, what is the joke? See, God has a sense of humor and he took one of the greatest jokes in all of world history and he included it in the Bible. He did. What's that? Yeah, Epimenides, one of their number is a Cretan and he says Cretans are always liars. The Cretan, the Epimenides, the Cretan paradox is I say to you, I'm lying. and nothing makes sense. The jury must acquit, right? I'm lying is impossible because if I'm telling the truth, 
about lying, then I'm not lying by saying it. But if I'm not telling the truth that I'm lying, but I, I just said I was lying, so that it doesn't work. It's impossible. It's a, it's a verbal paradox. There are lots of these. I'll, I'll try to get my list up here next hour and share some of these with you. But um, some of the greatest humor in the world is this kind of verbal paradox. I've told you a million times not to exaggerate, that kind of thing. <laughs> Cretans are always liars. Now, Paul seizes upon this Cretan paradox that, that is from this famous um, Epimenides, 6th uh, century philosopher. He seizes upon this because he's setting Titus up to summarize the people he's going to. Now, Paul doesn't say this is cultural chauvinism to say that Cretans are always liars. He doesn't say, hey, everybody I've, I've ever met from Crete's a liar. He doesn't say it that way. He says their own person, their own famous poet says that he's, they're liars. He's talking about himself. Now, this is interesting what Paul says. Notice the next thing Paul says. You can even cheat and look at verse 13. What does Paul say next? This testimony is true. <laughs> Here, here, he says. <laughs> I bought a dog and the dog ran away. Went to see the guy that I bought it from. The dog was with the guy I bought it from. And uh, they're, they're grifters. They're liars. They're cheats. They're, they're a culture of, of lethargy and immorality. This testimony is true. Now, of all the people in the Bible to say that a culture of people is composed of liars and lazy bellies. I would expect the Apostle Paul to say that. I think he'd say that about any culture in the world because we're sinners. Paul's the one that taught us that. He's the one that most clearly has taught us the doctrine of original sin in Romans chapter five and, of the not, and the application of the Old Testament statement that none are righteous, not one. We've all like sheep gone astray in Romans three. We expect for Paul to say this is true of any culture. So let's don't just be sneering at the Cretans. Let's say that they have an interesting cultural mix, like all cultures, composed of sinners, human beings that are guilty of personal sin and deceived by Satan and his fallen angels to comport with a world system opposed to God. This testimony, Paul says, is true on account of which rebuke them severely. You're going into a bunch of liars and gluttons and filthy beasts rebuke them severely. You have to talk harshly to them so that they will be sound in the faith. Rebuke them severely so that they'll be sound in the faith. That is a strength, a strengthening statement that a young man needs to hear when you're going into a difficult situation. Hey, this is going to be hard. So go in and say what you need to say. Make sure they get it. Now, what's the risk Paul runs by telling a young man, young Titus, to do this? Now, it's not really a risk because he knows Titus and he knows how much to say. But if he'd said this to me, I might go beyond my brief and get a little more severe than I should. But Titus, you need to be appropriate to the occasion. Is Paul appropriate to the occasion when he has to be corrective? Yes. And see, I think that people, the churches around here are full of people that don't want to hear the Bible rebuke them. They want to hear something pleasant and it was good to be seen and we sang some songs. And I'm not talking about evangelicalism. I'm talking about post-Christian America where there are all these churches, but there's no Bible. There's no rebuke. There's no God's word saying, hey, Cretans, quit being a liar, quit being a lazy belly. Churches are full of this and it's, it's the... It's the liberal project that's been plaguing us for more than 100 years in our country. People don't want someone to come in and severely rebuke them. But if they knew what was good for them, they would want it. And that's what Paul thinks. That's why Galatians and First and Second Corinthians, Paul, when he has to be terse, he's terse. And Jesus is too. Why did you doubt? Peter, you know, I'm really sorry you sunk in the waves. You must feel really bad. Are you okay? That's not what Jesus says. 
He hauls him out of the water and says, why did you doubt? He's tough. And guess what? Peter needs him to be tough because he's thick-skulled like you and me. And we have a Savior who tells us how it is where we are and meets us right where we are. Rebuke them severely so that they will be sound in the faith, not holding to Jewish myths and commandments of men. And listen to the description of the commandments of men who are turning away from the truth. Why would you obey something that someone says who's rejecting God, turning away from the truth? Because you're deceived. That's why you would do it. All things on the one hand, the men de construction tells you you've got two things being compared, men and de. And so what's being said here is all things on the one hand are pure to the pure. But on the other hand, to those who have been defiled and are unbelieving, nothing is pure. What does that mean? That means that back to what we said in verse 9, that you're going to have some that are going to need to hear the sound words so that they grow and be encouraged. And you have some who contradict and need to be corrected and silenced by it. The word is going to be received. The word, the all things that is the word you're going to teach is going to be received by the faithful and it's going to be rejected by the rejectors. And you need to be strong enough to say it so that the rejectors get it. And if they have to, they have to go. And it's not comfortable in that church being told how we are. I don't want to be corrected all the time. Well, I don't want to be corrected. I don't want anyone to be corrected more than they need to be. How's that? Just as much as we need. And today, guess what? Like every day of my life, I need to have that repentant moment where I recognize that it's not about me. And today, I need to have that moment of changing my mind where I think that, but I am the problem because I'm a sinner. I need to have that corrective moment where I say, and the world is calling to my sinful nature in its cultural expression of Satan's rebellion. And it is trying to get me to agree against God. I need to have that repentant, that change of my moment every single day where I say, and since all these things are true, what else is true is that I've been saved by the grace of God to a new and living hope, which focuses my attention, not on the world, but on the future and what God is going to do with me for the sake of the world and God's glory. And my life is his and my life is for him. And my joy comes from that and only that. See, that's a, that's repentance. And I think it, I think we need to go through that change of mind process every single day. And that is a rebuke to me in my sinful nature. That is a correction of my tendencies. Is it not a correction to your tendencies? And all the arguments against it. Oh, you're, you're too, you're too radical. Paul was a, was the apostle. We can't be the apostle. No, you're the disciple and you're supposed to make more disciples based on what Paul told you. And so be imitators of me. He says, even as I imitate Christ, I mean, all the way to imitating Christ. Yes. And where you fall short, you don't say, well, these standards are too high. Let's adjust them where you fall short. You say, I fell short. The standard doesn't change. And God, every time I confess my sins, picks me up, dusts me off and makes me fit, makes me capable of getting back in the harness and being about his work. Now, the, the problem with the rejecter is that he's defiled and there's nothing about God's word that is savory to him. But both these people, both their mind and their conscience have been defiled. So the good word of God is rejected. I'm going to flip back just a couple of pages and read a passage here as we close. Approaching our closing, read a passage that is hopefully very familiar to you. Listen to the sound words of Jesus. All who are under the yoke as slaves in 1 Timothy 6, 1 are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God will not be and our doctrine will not be spoken against. And those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they're brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved teach and preach these things. If anyone advocates a different teaching or doctrine, it does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ. And with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he's conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and word battles out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, and all evil suspicions. 
what I just read to you, a passage that this world, the culture that you live in today will say, you cannot believe in the Bible if you have to believe in 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. I know better than that. A second grader in our public school system knows better than that. That, that slaves honor their masters. Absolutely not. We all know better. Paul says in that context, if you know better, the thing is, you're arrogant and conceited. You, know, you understand nothing. You're just a product of your sin nature. And so that's what's going on here. The good sound word of God. By the way, do y'all remember the answer to the question, like how can the slave honor his master? What is the thought process in Paul's mind? Is he validating slavery as an institution? No. Is he trying to promote slavery and uh, Mediterranean su supremacy, whatever, tan people supremacy? <laughs> Can't really say white supremacy. These people are, Paul's a Jew from from uh, Tarsus and, uh, and they're Mediterraneans, right? So I, I don't even know where the island of Caucasus is. I have no idea how you tr try to do racism with the Bible, given that nobody, none of these people ever uh, had any connection to England. <laughs> but anyway, um, how, how do you deal with this with Paul? Well, the answer is obviously, he says it that the word of God won't be spoken against, that you are on mission in your servitude, that you're looking eternally at your standing in Christ. And so you're serving him in the situation you find yourself, which as I've told you is your temporal mission context. So your life project is not to change economic strata. Your life project is within wherever you find yourself to glorify God to the max, to represent Christ, to present him to a lost and dying world. That is the same thing Paul is doing with Titus here, where he says these people that are going to reject your teaching, their, their hardware is broken. Their conscience, their mind have been defiled. God, they confess to know. Paul leads in verse 16 with God. Titus 1.16, God. And that's in a focal position. God, they homologeo, they confess to know. But by their works, they deny. They confess to know, but by their works, they deny. What are the works of these people in the context? Their teaching, their contradiction of God's word. Remember, we're talking about false teachers. Always look at context. This is not necessarily a denouncement of someone living in a lifestyle of general personal sin or sexual immorality so much as a statement about someone who in a lifestyle of rejecting God's word communicates falsehood. Watch the context. You'll know them by their fruits in, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, what's he talking about? Prophets, false prophets. What's the fruit of a false prophet? His prophecy. People grab stuff out of context all the time. If they're really sinning, then we really know they're not Christians. Well, you need to read more of Paul on this. But these people, by their works of false teaching, they deny God. Being detestable and disobedient to whom? To God. And because of their rejection of God, for every good work, they're worthless. There's a philosophy of ministry statement in verse 16 here. God, they confess to know, but by their works, they deny because they're detestable, being detestable and disobedient and for every good work, worthless. I have brothers in Christ that'll say, we do a disservice to the body when we emphasize good works. Beloved brothers in Christ will say, you talk about good works too much. You should talk about the grace of God more. As though the grace of God is not equipping us to do his work, which is the greatest blessing that this life has to offer. As though there is not an, an, a chain connecting the grace of God to the works that he prepared for you in Ephesians 2.10 as though there is a distinction somehow between the grace of God and the good works. It isn't good if it isn't God working through you. It isn't the good that God wants to produce if it isn't the spirit of God working in you. And see, these people don't have this and they're useless for the good works. How do you become useful in verse 16 for the good works? You're obedient, submissive to God. You know God and live out what he said. 
And so this, this statement about conduct and conviction really sets the, sets the stage for chapter two, where we hear how the elder men, elder women, young men, young women, how everyone is slaves. It's another household code from the apostle Paul for how to conduct yourself in Titus two for the first several verses. And we'll look at that next hour, but look at, look at what's wrong with these people. They're rejecting God and his authority. And so they're rejecting God and his word. And so that makes them worthless for the good work. I believe that good works conducted out of the power of the spirit through the word in you are worthless works. I think these are dead works. I believe that you can do charitable action A that is identical to charitable action B and they be two different qualities of work because A was empowered by God through the word and B was altruistic. I wanted to do, it feels good to help people. And this is the spiritual life. And Paul is drawing this distinction here. I don't care if these false teachers are doing a food drive. They're detestable and disobedient and worthless for every good work. But not you and me. Not if we're walking by the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love and all that it produces. All that describes it. The fruit of the Spirit produces in you this capacity to do the work that God wants you to do. And that is the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we've enjoyed thinking through Titus chapter one today of what an elder or an overseer has to be like, what his priorities are, how he conducts his philosophy of ministry. And it has to be about the word you've given us, holding fast the faithful word that's based on or in accordance with your teaching. Father, we praise you for those who have summarized well who have done excellent work in systematic theology on whose shoulders we must stand. And thank you, especially for those of them who said, and the most important thing to remember is that God has given us his word through the apostles and prophets. So we'll know him on his terms. Father, we praise you that we know you this way. And as we open our hearts to your words, we say yes to what you've said. Father, fit us for every good work. Make us successful in your accounting. Help us enjoy the salvation that we have received. Father, we know that there's no greater joy than walking in the truth and knowing that our children walk in the truth. Let it be so for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.